Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 8. We're going to continue on with our series in Judges. I used to do a lot more running and jogging than I do now, especially before having children. Um, I actually, we actually bought this thing called a jogging stroller before we had children, thinking that we're going to do all this jogging. Does anyone have one of those things? Does anyone use it? Uh, yeah, I know. See? Exactly. That's my point. I bring this up because I want you to think about running as we start here this morning, even if we don't run very much. And what would you say is more important in a race? Is the start of the race more important or the finish? At least according to the judges, it's the finish, correct? I remember when I was in cross country in high school, we had a guy, he was more of a track star than cross country guy, but he ran anyway to stay in shape. And his goal at the start of every race, we ran three miles or so, 3.1 miles, he wanted to be in the lead the first 200 yards, especially when we got to like sectional and maybe regional at these more high-profile races. He's like, I'm going to lead the race at the beginning just in case the photographer takes a photo at the beginning. It'll say so-and-so is leading the race. And then after those 200 yards, he would get winded and slowly fade back and, you know, finish probably in the middle of the pack. Well, when it comes to a race, the finish is usually way more important than start. Well, well, the same is also true spiritually, isn't it? Yes, the start's important, and, and the middle's important too, but, but how we finish is vitally important, according to Scripture. We've been studying the life of Gideon, and we've seen that he has started fairly well in Judges chapter 6, even though he was reluctant to follow God's call. God called him to lead the Israelites against the mighty Midianite army, And we saw in chapter 7 last week how God took his army of 32,000 and whittled it down to how many people? 300. And they were facing a force of 135,000. That's not very good odds. 300 versus 135,000. And yet God miraculously, supernaturally delivers them. Gideon has this incredible moment of faith, trusting in God. But we're going to see a little bit of a different story today in chapter 8 because Gideon has started well. But we're going to read this, and I want you to determine, is Gideon doing well now as he continues his journey or not? If you look up on screen, we're going to start uh, with this map here. This is uh, the Israelite territory. It's divided up into 12 different tribes. I know it's hard to see, but up there towards the top, it says West Manasseh and Issachar. That's where most of the action took place last week. And if you go to the next slide, the map will zoom in. There in that top box, it shows the Midianite army fighting Gideon's men. Then there's an arrow pointing downwards all the way to the right. Well, Gideon is going to start pursuing this Midianite army all the way to the right and southeast. So let me start by reading uh, verse 1. It says, Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him, and what does it say? Vigorously. So the tribe of Ephraim, they are mad that Gideon did not call them to the fight. By the way, Gideon didn't call very many people at all to the fight. Because how many were in the fight again on his side? 300. Why do you think they're mad, Ephraim? We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But they missed out on the glory, the victory, the battle. I mean, they did help out. And look look what Gideon's going to say in response in verse 2. But he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes 
better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer. He's talking about Abiezer is his clan, his family, his tribe. He's saying, your produce, your gleanings are way better than ours. And then go to verse 3. Gideon says, God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders from last week in chapter 7, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, the resentment against him subsided. So, I need your participation for a moment. If, if Gideon is doing well, I want you to go like this. If he's not doing well in his leadership, go like this. So what do you think? How's he doing? So far, so good. This is a tense situation, potentially explosive situation. And Gideon, you know, kind of a soft answer turns away wrath. Or as my professors would say, wrath, because that sounded more spiritual, you know. That's, that's what he does. But look what it says in verse 4. And five, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan River and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, give my troops some bread. They are worn out and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. So if you look up on screen, this place, Sukkoth, is a little bit farther down now. It's about maybe a fourth of the way up. There's actually a question mark beside it. It's kind of hard to see where it's at. Sukkoth is in the Israelite territory, and Gideon is asking, hey, can you give us some bread, some food? Our troops are tired. And look what it says in verse 6 now. But the officials of Sukkoth said, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? I mean, they're basically saying, prove that you've killed them by showing us their hands. I know that seems barbaric, but that's kind of what you did back then. Verse 7, then Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. So let's take another vote here. How's Gideon doing? What do you think? Yeah, he's not doing so well. This is his own people. And this was a very common yet barbaric torturous practice that they did. In fact, it was condemned in the book of Amos that they were not to do this. But Gideon says, I'm going to do this to you if, you know, when I come back. And then verse 8, from there he went to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Sukkoth had. And in verse 9 it says, so he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. So let's take a vote again. How's he doing? Man, Gideon, come on, man. Verse 10, Oh, there's, there's a map again. That's okay. It's, we'll keep going. Verse 10. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men and all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120 swordsmen, 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jagbaha and attacked the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. So, in some ways, this is good because Gideon is finishing off the job. He's getting rid of the Midianite forces. Verse 13, Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Harris. He caught a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Sukkoth, the elders of the town. So, so what's Gideon going to do to these men, you think? Remember? He's going to scrape them with these briars and thorns. So verse 15, Then Gideon came and said to the men of Sukkoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? 
He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel, and let's read this together, and killed the men of the town. What did he say earlier he was going to do to the town of Peniel? He just said he was going to take their tower down. But now he's killing his own people. So let's see the survey again. What do you think of Gideon? Who two thumbs way down, right? Verse 18, then he asked Ziba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? And they said, men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. So ironically, a kid shows a lot more restraint than a grown man. Verse 21, Ziba and Zamunna said, come do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stopped, stepped forward and killed them. And he took the ornaments off their camel's necks. Remember, they had a lot of camels. So let's stop there for a second. We're going to talk about how do you finish well spiritually? We talked about this physically But how do you actually finish well so that you're more like a chapter 7 Gideon with the 300 men showing faith in the Lord versus a chapter 8 Gideon? Well, we see a a few points. Number one, if we're going to finish well, we have to watch out for personal idols that draw you away from the Lord. Say that with me. Watch out for personal idols that draw you away from the Lord. I know we don't have time to discuss, but if you think about just the 21 verses we read, Think of the things that are getting in the way of the Lord, not just from Gideon's perspective, but also from the tribe of Ephraim at the beginning in the towns of Sukkoth and Peniel. Let me give you some examples that the text brings up that can draw us away from the Lord because remember, an idol is anything that you and I worship more than the Lord, anything that you and I put as number one before the Lord. So for instance, Ephraim, I think at the very beginning when they're complaining about not going to the battle, Their idol, I think, is status. They want glory. They want acclaim. They want to be part of the spoils. You know, they want the fame that comes from winning. And status isn't always necessarily bad, per se. I mean, sometimes that can drive us to be excellent and do a good job. But but if that's what we have to have more than anything else, it it can cause a lot of chaos. In fact, how many of you would say Gideon is also on his own personal quest for kind of a status, so to speak, here. And do you see what kind of chaos that causes in the lives of the Israelites and and in the towns and his own people? I mean, think of your own life this morning. How many of us right now, if you're honest, you would say, you know what, the number one thing I want in my life right now is status, acclaim, notoriety. In fact, what are some of the things we look to to get that status in our lives as Americans? What do you think? You can shout it out. What do you think? Money, Money. yep. Houses and possessions, technology, yeah, acceptance. And if we're not careful, if that's the number one thing we want, those things aren't necessarily bad. You know, if they are dedicated to the Lord, they can be good. Another one that we see in our text, too, is the idea of security. Sukkoth and Peniel, they will not help Gideon. So, I mean, it is, it is Gideon's fault that he takes so much... Uh, vengeance on them, but 
but they are afraid of helping Gideon because they've been oppressed for so long. They're afraid that, hey, until you prove it that you've actually killed those leaders who've been oppressing us, we're not going to help you. Our security is not in you or the Lord. It's in, you know, just kind of staying neutral. How many of you would say that you desire security in your life? Some of you are afraid to answer on it, but it's not a bad thing, right? Security is a good thing. But if it's the ultimate thing, especially if we're looking to security in something else other than the Lord, it can become a problem. What are some things we look to for security in life? You can shout them out again. Money. Someone say money. <laughs> That's a very common theme. Good health. Good health. Possessions. Let's go to the third one. The third one that I see with Gideon, and I had a hard time narrowing it down to just a couple. But with Gideon, he is on his own personal quest for vengeance and vindication. I think his heart is driven by this desire for honor and respect and glory and status. I mean, we find out later on in the text that the reason he wants to get these guys is that they, they killed his brothers. By the way, do we see Gideon at all? asking the Lord about any of this in chapter 8? No. In chapter 7, he was willing to talk with the Lord, converse with the Lord. Chapter 6, hey, show me a sign. But chapter 8, I'm going to be in my own quest to do what I want to do. And so really what we see in 21 verses is if we pursue anything else other than the Lord, it can, it can knock us off track. It can draw us away from the Lord, and it can cause a tremendous amount of chaos in our lives, socially, relationally, with the Lord and with others. And so the question to ask yourself this morning is, what are you pursuing more than the Lord? Is the Lord really number one in your life? Or is it something else? Chances are, if, if you are causing a lot of destruction in your life relationally, chances are that is being fueled by something else other than the Lord. Something like status or security. Maybe vengeance or honor. So we need to watch out that these things don't get between us and God if we're going to finish well. The second thing we have to do, the second way to finish well, is we have to realize that success can be dangerous to your soul. Say that with me. Realize that success can be dangerous to your soul. Now, I am not against success. Gideon just had an incredible victory, huge blessing in chapter 7 of, of defeating the Midianites and even defeating them here. But we get the idea that Gideon, this success is starting to go to his head. In chapter 6 and 7, he was reluctant. He was trusting in the Lord, even though he was reluctant. But in chapter 8 now, he's on his own personal quest. It's almost like he's got too big for his britches now. He thinks he can do whatever he wants. I know that suffering can be a great test for many people, but did you know that one of the biggest tests in your life is success? Because when you're successful... You may rely on God at first, but as you keep being successful, who do you think you rely on more? Yourself. In fact, it's easy to kind of look around and say, I am so successful, I wonder why they're not quite as successful as me. We even do this in ministry. If God moves in a mighty way in our church or ministry and we see other churches that it doesn't seem like they're doing as well, we're like, well, we must have more of the Holy Spirit here at First Missionary, you know. If we're not careful, success can quickly go to our heads, one of my favorite theologians says it like this. He says, there is a terrible spiritual danger involved in the receiving of any blessing. Success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts, and this is important, our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. 
God-given victory can easily be used to confirm the belief that, in fact, we have earned our blessing and that we should receive glory and praise. And then he gives an example. He says, imagine a man who works extremely hard at his job because he needs to prove himself through financial success. What is the worst thing that can happen to him, you think? What do you think? Well, according to this guy, he would probably think if I lost my job, if I didn't have any money, that would be the worst thing. But obviously that would be bad, and we don't wish that on anyone. But the worst thing that could potentially happen to him is actually career success. Is actually getting everything he wants. Because success will only confirm his belief that he can fulfill himself and control his own life. He will be more of a slave to success and money than if he had failed. So if he fails, he'll actually have the chance to realize that he should not be putting his hope in success and achievement and money and career. Success can actually be really dangerous. Let's go on to number three here in a second. And to do so, I want to keep reading in verse 22. And if you're able to, would you stand for the reading of God's word? I haven't had you stand yet. You were waiting for it, I know. (laughs) Verse 22 The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Verse 23, but Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. Who's going to rule over you? The Lord. So let's see another survey. How's he doing on this answer? Boy, chapter 8's a little bit confusing. I mean, it just shows that life is a little bit complicated when it comes to evaluating some leaders. Verse 24, and he said, I do have one request, though, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. You know how many pounds that is? Well, in my Bible, in the footnote, it says 43 pounds, not counting the ornaments. How many of you have 43 pounds of gold just lying around your house, you know? That, that's the kind of treasure that would go towards a king. So even though he's refusing kingship, he's actually, ironically, subtly accepting it. So the weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting, listen to this, the ornaments, the pendants, and all the other bling, the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. And remember, It said earlier, their camels were like the sand on the seashore. They couldn't be counted. Let's keep going. Verse 27, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. And all Israel, what's it say? Prostituted. We've seen that word before in chapter 2. They prostituted themselves, spiritually speaking, by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So you can be seated. How's Gideon doing now? Oof, it just gets, keeps getting worse. He takes the gold, 43 pounds of it or so, makes it into an ephod. And so if you look on screen, here's a picture of an ephod. It was an outer garment, mainly around the chest, that the priest would wear that when they would serve in the tabernacle. And they would wear it to represent the people because they would have uh, the names of Israel inscribed on the gems. They would also wear it too, we think, because... They had these, um, this thing called the Urim and Thummim that they would use to discern the will of the Lord, almost like spiritual dice that we don't use today. And so it makes us wonder, what is Gideon thinking doing this? Why on earth, I mean, shouldn't he know better? Why on earth would he make an ephod? 
that they would then worship. Well, here's an educated guess. I can't prove it. But remember, God had, showed, had shown Gideon several things through clothing. For instance, this says in Judges 6.34 that when the Spirit of the Lord came on him, literally the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And then at the end of chapter 6, when Gideon is asking for a sign, he's actually using a piece of cloth, right? A clothing, so to speak, a fleece to test and discern the will of the Lord. And so maybe to highlight all those things in his past, maybe to show that now he has discerned the will of the Lord, he can do whatever he wants. Either way, this theme of clothing shows up again, but not in a positive way. As all Israel, it says, prostitutes themselves, that is, worships other gods. Remember, we use that language in chapter two because the Bible's telling us that when you and I put something else before God, it's like we are committing spiritual prostitution. A prostitute will come into a relationship with their customer. I know this is not fun to think about, but they will give much and not get much in return. Well, the same is true spiritually speaking. We think we're gaining a lot by whatever we're pursuing, whether it's status or notoriety or acceptance or fame, fortune, whatever it is. We think it promises much, but it's actually like committing spiritual prostitution, always taking more from us than giving. So this brings me to my third point. We have two more. If we're going to finish well, we have to stay humble before the Lord because all of us could be like Gideon. All of us may be like this right now or maybe like this. I don't know where you're at, but all of us could be like this, just like Gideon. It's easy to look at Gideon and say, you know what? He should have known better. God showed up in a miraculous way. God delivered him in a mighty way. How could he forget God? I won't have you raise your hand, but how many of you at some point this week forgot about the Lord and the way you acted or the way you spoke, the way you parented, the way you treated your spouse, or just plain, hey, I even forgot to be in the word this week. That's how crazy this week was. You may have not have crafted a spiritual ephod and hung it up somewhere to worship, but didn't your heart and my heart go astray by doing that? You know, I think it's easy to look down on Gideon, but there was a, a senior saint in my last church I was in that I think really explained this idea of humility to me. He was the kind of guy that could look at you, and when he looked at you, it felt like he could see right to your soul. Do you ever look at someone like that, ever know someone like that, that they just look at you and say, how are you? And it's like you just have to like tell them your life story right then and there. That's the kind of guy he was. <laughs> and he would say, Rick, you know, when I, was, when I was younger, I thought I would change the world. And then I realized that was a daunting task. So then I decided I'm going to change my community as I got older. And then I realized that's a daunting task, so I'm going to change my, my church. And then I realized that's pretty daunting too. So I said, I'm going to change my family. I'm going to change my spouse or my kids. And he realized that's a pretty daunting task. And then by the end of his life, he's saying, you know what, Lord? Change me. Now, yes, the Lord calls us to go and influence and minister and help disciple and change people, but I think that is expressing point number three so well. He realized as he got older that he is prone to wander, as the song Come Thou Fount says, that if he's not careful, he could be just like Gideon. He could fall away from the Lord. It is only by the grace of God that each of us keep pursuing the Lord every single day. Amen? And here's a quick test. When you hear of somebody falling in the Christian faith, whether it's a prominent leader or maybe a friend, 
What is your heart reaction to that? Are you quick to point the finger and say, aha, that serves them right. That's what they had coming to them. And you go to the coffee shop and gossip about it. If we're not careful, if, if we're like that in any way, we are not getting point number three. But if we see someone, even a prominent leader, and see them fall, and we say, you know what? That could be me too. I am just, I have the potential just to be like that. Then we are on the way to understanding humility. To finish with number four, I want to read the rest of our text. So how's Gideon doing again? How's he doing? Just wait. Verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued. So that's positive. Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. So that's good. Verse 29. Jeroboam, who's that? That's Gideon. That's what he was called earlier. So the text is calling him Jeroboam. That is not a good sign. That means let Baal contend. Jeroboam, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had how many sons? Seventy sons of his own, for he had many wives. So let's, how's he doing? He's acting like a king. This is what kings would do, pagan kings. They would have concubines and wives, and, you know, they want to expand their royal seats. They would have lots of children. Verse 31, his concubine, who lived in Shechem, which was not an Israelite town, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Now, by the way, that name Abimelech, you know what that literally means? He named his son, my father is king. So what is Gideon saying about himself? That he's the what? He's the king. Come here, my father is king. Come and play. You know, can you imagine? (laughs) Everybody would hear that (laughs) and know that Gideon is setting himself up to be king. Verse 32, Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and he was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again, what's the word? Prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereath as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. So this takes me to my last point, number four. How do we finish well spiritually? Let's read it together. We have to pursue the supernatural yet ordinary means of grace. And I would add daily. What I mean by that when I use means of grace are God has given us so many tools, so many gifts that we can use to help us keep our eyes on him, spiritually speaking, every single day. And they may seem ordinary because we kind of take them for granted, but they're actually supernatural. They're ways that that God can speak to us that he's given us. So for instance, the word of God. The word of God is probably the most prominent way that God can speak to us today. And as you think about this past week, how many of us pursued the word of God at least at some level? You know, we have the opportunity to read the very words of life. And if you are too busy to read the word of God, then you and I are too busy, period. There's got to be a way to pursue this more and more to allow God to speak to us through the Holy Spirit, through his word. This is one of those supernatural yet seemingly ordinary means of grace that God gives us every single day. You know, I just discovered on the Bible app that you can, um, I knew you could always listen to it with audio on version. 
but you can also play it even faster. I kind of get bored when it's at just one speed. I like to go faster. So I put it at 1.5. I even put it at times two speed. And the word of the Lord came to Gideon. It's kind of fun to listen to, but it helps me get in to the word of God. <laughs> that may not help you, but it really helps me. <laughs> My mind tends to work faster than somebody talking. Another supernatural yet ordinary means of grace is the people of God. Look around you real quick. Look behind you, look above you at our good old balcony people. Look below you. God has given you each other to spur each other on, to pursue the Lord. You are a gift to people around you here at First Missionary Church. And one of the things I'll notice as a pastor is, if we're not careful, we can kind of take each other for granted. We can, we can start to, to miss, and I'm not just trying to bash if you miss church, but it's easy as you get busy to miss church to miss your Bible study, to miss your accountability group, whatever structure you have set up. And as you slowly fade, it gets very dangerous because we're not pursuing these supernatural yet ordinary means of grace to remind us that we need to finish well. I know life gets busy and stressful, which is normal, but if we neglect these supernatural yet ordinary means of grace like fellowship and accountability and the word and prayer and outreach, it gets dangerous. Many of you have heard of the band Casting Crowns. They had a song that came out years ago now. It goes like this. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray. And thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. And then they say people never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. If you read the account I was looking up last night online of some prominent Christian leaders that have fallen, those who, are, those who are honest about their journey, if they've fallen, will say, you know what? I didn't decide to become like this overnight. There was a slow pattern where I stopped pursuing the Lord, stopped having accountability, stopped pursuing the Word, stopped you know, coming, you know, pursuing the means of grace. And the reason that we actually pursue these means of grace is because they help us keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Think of how Jesus compares to Gideon as we close our time together. Unlike Gideon, who said, I'm not going to be king, but really was king and wanted to be served, Jesus came, the text says, not to be served, but to do what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Unlike Gideon, who didn't finish well or continue well, Jesus meant from the beginning to the end of his life, he was consistent to his father's will. He stayed even in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is sweating drops of blood because he's about to, to bear the wrath of God for sin. He stayed. He even stayed up on the cross, shedding his own blood until he cried out, it is finished. You know, unlike Gideon who led his people astray with a religious object that ephod, kind of setting himself up as a priest, the text says that Jesus is our great high priest in the book of Hebrews who always lives to make intercession for us. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus so that we will not grow weary and lose heart, the book of Hebrews says. And that's what these ordinary yet supernatural means of grace enable us to do. So I wanna encourage you right now just to close your eyes and bow your heads and just ask the Lord, ask him, how am I doing with you? How's our relationship going? Have I drifted? Am I falling away like a Gideon? Do I need to repent and confess? And the beautiful thing is, if you confess and repent, God is gracious. He will forgive you. 
He will enable you and empower you to pursue him. Where are you at in your relationship with the Lord? Father, thank you for your word, Lord. It not only shows us examples to emulate, like in chapter 7 with Gideon, but examples not to emulate, to avoid in chapter 8. Father, I pray right now that you would just help us to have a, a reality check moment with you. If we need to confess, may we do so humbly. If it's going well, may we rejoice in that, but not take the credit. You deserve all the credit and glory. Lord, may First Missionary Church be filled with people who not only start and continue, but finish well to the very end. And may your son, Jesus Christ, empower us to fulfill that vision, Father. Thank you that even though Gideon makes us long for a leader, you fulfilled it through Jesus Christ, the perfect leader. We love you so much today. In Jesus' name.